Welcome back to the AWB Podcast, the official podcast of the Association of Washington Business, the catalytic leader and unifying voice for economic prosperity throughout Washington State. In this episode, Amy Anderson, AWB's Government Affairs Director for Federal Affairs, Education, and Healthcare, talks with Representatives Derek Kilmer and Jamie Herrera-Butler about their bipartisan legislation to increase funding to the Paycheck Protection Program, and what is to be expected overall as the country moves into economic recovery efforts. Good morning, everyone. Thank you for joining us. I'm AWB Government Affairs Director for Federal Policy, Amy Anderson, and I will be moderating today's webinar. As the coronavirus continues to spread in communities throughout our state and the nation, policies and recommendations are changing every day for our communities. We are fortunate today to have two members of Washington State's congressional delegation, Congressman Derek Kilmer and Congresswoman Jamie Herrera-Butler, to discuss with us how Congress is addressing this crisis and how it might act to support Washington and the country in economic recovery efforts. Before we get started with the program in just a moment, I wanted to inform you about how you can participate in the conversation today. When you signed up for this call, you signed up today through your computers using GoToWebinar. In the lower right corner of the Goto pop-up screen, there's a chat box. Just type your question in there and we'll be able to see it. Additional questions we received today that we are unable to have the speakers answer will be sent to the speakers for them to provide input, so please do not hesitate to ask. And a link to the full recording of today's webinar will be sent post-event to everyone who has registered. Now that we have our housekeeping done, I would like to introduce today's guests. Congressman Kilmer represents Washington's 6th Congressional, Congressional District and is currently serving his fourth term in the House of Representatives. The Congressman is a member of the House Appropriations Committee and an active participant in the Bipartisan Working Group, which brings Republicans and Democrats together to find common ground to move our country forward. Congressman Kilmer is focused on workforce and economic development, supporting our state's military installations and top-notch constituent services, among other priorities. Congresswoman Jamie Herrera-Butler represents the 3rd Washington Congressional District located in Southwest Washington. The Congresswoman is a senior member of the Appropriations Committee, which is re responsible for directing all federal discretionary spending. Congresswoman Herrera-Butler is focused on protecting good-paying jobs and economic opportunity for Southwest Washington residents. As a mother of three young children and co-founder of the Bipartisan Maternity Care Caucus, she's also been a leader on legislation to protect the health of mothers and children and has championed solutions to increase child care options for working families. Welcome Congressman Kilmer and Congresswoman Herrera-Butler. I want to begin, thank you both for being here, and want to thank you for your bipartisan efforts to support Washington State during this difficult time. The Coronavirus Worker Relief Act, your reach out to the SBA and U.S. Treasury to improve the Paycheck Protection Program for small business, and your call to increase funding to the Paycheck Protection Program are just a few examples. I would like to start by asking you both to talk about the bipartisan nature of your efforts and the outcome of your work. Congresswoman Herrera-Butler, let us begin with you. Well, I just wanted to say thank you. Thanks uh, to get to be a part of this <laughs> um, and to talk to folks. Uh, obviously, the Paycheck Protection Program has been wonderfully popular. Um, and one of the things I think we're learning is that um, and I think we knew when it came is we were going to we were going to hit this wall pretty quickly. Um, in fact, one of the things I heard the secretary say this morning was he wanted to get it out and and I'm paraphrasing, fix the problems later. Um, and this is the later. So I think some of what we're going to hear today is how we can uh, 
address those things and then share the effort that Derek's leading that I'm, I'm joining him on uh, to try and urge some of our colleagues in DC to be forward thinking. And um, we know we're gonna be dealing with this for months and let's see if we can get some, uh, some relief for folks uh, going now uh, so that we don't run out of funds again. Turn it back over. I'm, I apologize. So I, I know Amy, you've been working on um, you know childcare issues. You've been working on them regardless of COVID. So now we're in COVID and everybody's children are with them. Mine will most definitely make a an uninvited appearance. I'm just going to go ahead and say that now. They've been joining me for all of my calls. It's been interesting. Oh, we welcome them. Thank you, Congressman. Super. Well, um, first off, uh, thanks to the AWB for having us this morning. And um, most importantly, thanks for all you're doing to ensure uh, our state's employers are getting the best and most accurate information. Um, obviously, our our region, our entire country has been um, really strained as a consequence of this pandemic. It's impacted our healthcare system and our economy and on our families. And I guess for everybody who's watching, let me just start by saying, I hope you're keeping safe and staying well and managing through these tough times. Um, I, I also um, wanna just say as a guy who spent my professional life working in economic development before I got to Congress, um, I just want to say thank you. Thank you to our employers um, who are creating jobs and um, adding to the vitality of our state. Uh, thanks for those of you who are trying to weather this storm. I, I think about, you know, we always hear small businesses are the backbone of our economy. I think about them as our star running back. If you look at how we generally grow jobs in this country, um, it's our small businesses, our Main Street employers that are racking up the tough yards and scoring the touchdowns. And right now, because of this pandemic, a lot of them are getting tackled behind the line of scrimmage. Um, before the first case of COVID-19 was even diagnosed in our state, we were already hearing from small businesses who were feeling this pandemic's impacts. Because we're such a trade-dependent state, we, we were hearing from shellfish growers, um, from manufacturers who depend on global customers who were starting to feel the pain of this virus. And now, um, as we've sort of seen our economy put into a virus-induced coma, um, uh, you know, a lot of our Main Street employers are really feeling it. And that's why we've worked on a bunch of the work we've been doing to do some blocking and to call some plays for our star running backs, our small businesses. And that's why the CARES Act included the funding for uh, the economic uh, injury disaster loans. It's why the Paycheck Protection Program uh, was put in place in the first place. Obviously, these programs have had a rocky rollout and clearly more funding is needed. I feel like we just are persistently repeating the scene from the movie Jaws where Brody says, we're gonna need a bigger boat. Um, but we need that boat now because businesses are making decisions right now about whether to hunker down and try to weather this storm or just fold the tent. And that's why Jamie and I uh, reached out to the SBA administrator saying they need to do better in helping small businesses and lenders navigate this price crisis. It's why we introduced a bipartisan bill called the Paycheck Protection Program Extension Act to triple the amount of funding and to extend uh, the support through the duration of this pandemic because businesses need some certainty and some breathing room to help uh, help get through this. Um, I'll just also quickly mention, um, obviously, uh, last week, Congress put additional funds into the Paycheck Protection Program, an additional $310 billion. Um, uh, some new funding was set aside 
$30 billion reserved for community-based lenders or small banks and credit unions, another $30 billion for medium-sized banks and credit unions, with an eye towards getting funding to people who were left behind in the first round. Um, uh, part of the call we just heard with Secretary Mnuchin was that the, um, that small lender uh, funding um, is going out the door uh, tonight. Um, we also heard that in the first round of the 1.6 million loans that were put out, um, more than a million of them were to employers of 10 employees or, or fewer. Um, he also uh, said that, um, and I think all of us agreed, this program was not intended for large publicly traded companies. It was designed for our small businesses and they intend to um, audit that first round of loans. Um, anybody who asked for a loan over $2 million, uh, he said would be audited. Um, and uh, uh, if anyone was abusing the program, if um, large publicly traded companies were abusing the program, they would look at even uh, legal ramifications. Also just wanna quickly mention um, uh, real, real fast, um, I also introduced another bipartisan bill called the Restore America's Main Streets Act to deliver immediate and unrestricted relief to our small businesses through a, um, a rebate check. We saw in the CARES Act rebates to families and to individuals who are having a hard time weathering the storm. I actually think we should do that for our Main Street employers, and I'm happy to talk more about that as well. But we've got to make sure that um, uh, our Main Street employers are able to weather this storm and uh, I'm going to keep pushing uh, toward that end and appreciate the AWB's partnership and uh, Congresswoman Herr-Butler's partnership in that regard as well. So let me stop there. A oh, couple of quick questions that we've received from the audience. Um, in addition to the additional funding, obviously that's extremely important as there were several small businesses who did not receive uh, money in that first round. But what about uh, changes to how the uh, PPP is being implemented and uh, eligibility? So for example, we've had questions about the uh, eight week limitation. If this continues to go on further, are we going to be able to extend that? Uh, the nonprofit status, uh, a lot of us, and that's chambers as well, are C6s or C4s or C6s. Um, is there any uh, rule, uh, rules around uh, have, have those rules been changed or broadened to allow some of those? And then finally, we did have a question around the ratio for uh, funding from the 25-75% to an actual 50-50 change. Uh, either of you speak to one or all three of those uh, pieces that would, uh, if we were able to change those, alleviate some of the pressure for our businesses. Jamie, do you want me to take a crack at it? And then, um, so, uh, what happened last week was largely putting more funding into the programs um, uh, with the exception of making clear that agricultural uh, companies uh, are eligible. Um, you didn't see a lot of changes with regard to eligibility. Um, uh, on, on the call uh, that we did with Secretary Mnuchin, he said that there are um, changes in terms of, you know, the length of support would need uh, future legislation. Uh, interestingly enough, Congresswoman Herrera-Butler and I have legislation that we are proposing um, to extend it beyond that eight weeks. Uh, I think we were particularly hearing this with regard to um, businesses like restaurants, where even when uh, they reopen, they may reopen with um, 
a lower occupancy than they had before. And so thinking through what that might look like, I think is an important step for uh, for the next set of legislation that is not included uh, thus, thus far. Um, we have heard from 501c6s who want to be eligible. Um, I support that. Um, I signed on to a letter in support of uh, of that as well. Um, that has not yet been uh, provided uh, legislatively, but um, we're we're pushing for that. Uh, so maybe I'll leave it there. And if there's gaps that uh, Jamie wants to fill in that I missed, uh, well, I think you had it. I I. I'm trying to think. I can't tell if you signed on. I don't know if you saw this one or not. I did a letter last week with a, it was a bipartisan letter as well to relax the 75% uh, uh, standards, um, asking that um, with regard to payroll and such, so that we could have, that there would be that flexibility because we're hearing the same thing. Um, and uh, part of it was just, I think in, in addition, we wanted to make sure that we're trying to address the negative implications for forgiveness. If a small business is trying to rehire and they can't, <laughs> um, and we wanna make sure that we're covering businesses who are trying to do the right thing amidst all of this. So um, we haven't gotten a response on that, but there's a, definitely bipartisan groups who are pushing right now, the speaker and the majority leader um, to, to as we look, so we, I, I call what we just did 3.5. If we work on a, a 4.0, that we make that, a, we address that uh, in the legislation because we're hearing it from a number of businesses. Hey, Congressman Kilmer, thank you both. Uh, we had a question from a member asking you to discuss a little bit more about your Bain Street program, if you could give some more details. You bet. Um, it's a bill that we introduced uh, just at the end of, uh, of, of last week. It's called the Restore America's Main Street Act. And the goal is to provide immediate and unrestricted relief. This actually also came up on the call with uh, Treasury Secretary Mnuchin. Um, you know, I think as many folks know, employers on our main streets all over our country um, are really hurting right now as, as we work to contain the spread of the coronavirus. And while programs like the Paycheck Protection Program and the Economic Injury Disaster Loans are providing uh, good and significant assistance to, to millions of small businesses, many others are really struggling to gain access. And so the idea here is to provide a rebate to help our nation's small businesses to retain employees and to pay bills and keep the lights on. And the way it's structured in the bill that we've introduced is a, a small business with one and a half million dollars or less in gross receipts and 50 employees or fewer would receive a rebate check equal to 30% of their gross receipts reported in the previous year, uh, up to $120,000. It would apply to both um, small businesses, it would apply to self-employed individuals, and to uh, charitable organizations and, uh, as well. And um, uh, like a lot of the support that was included in the CARES Act, the rebates wouldn't count as taxable income and wouldn't have to be repaid. Um, again, our, our idea here is just to put another tool in the toolbox to help our Main Street employers and really some of our smallest small businesses that really struggled to access the um, Paycheck Protection Program and the EIDL loans to give them a lifeline to hopefully weather this storm. Would the um, would a would an, a business be eligible for both this program that you're proposing in addition to the PPP? Yes. Thank you. And Congresswoman, I'm going to turn to you, um, given the cameo that we just had, and talk about childcare a little bit here. We have had a lot of uh, activity around this. Our childcare centers reaching out 
they are considered essential workers. Um, they have a workforce that is not necessarily uh, you know, highly paid, um, does not necessarily have access to health care. So there are some current concerns. These folks are taking care of our essential workers, our health care workers, so they have increased exposure to the virus. Um, yet they are having a difficult time being supported. Uh, one piece that we had to work with in Washington State was a child care provider, if they went into a retail establishment, had the limitations on products as if you were a single family household. Uh, we know that child care center is going to use more paper towels, more bleach, more gloves than what a single family household is going to do. So we were able to help them with that. But is there more being done? And when we talk about the economic recovery, they are going to be a key element to that as people get back to work, um, as people who have lost their jobs permanently uh, need to do retraining programs. We need to make sure that we have a child care system that is supportive there. And in Washington State, where we were already experiencing a crisis in this industry, how can we best support them and what is being done to support that industry? So there's a number of things, you know, um, there's a number of things we can and should be doing. Uh, first, I think this is going to serve to highlight the critical role that child care workers play in not just our economy, but in our family life. You know, one of the reasons I think we see childcare deserts, which Southwest Washington, Washington State is one, is because we don't put enough emphasis on the the uh, on that system as a whole, whether it's the the actual physical buildings, whether it's the people who run them, or it's the teachers in them. We, you know, we're starting to figure out that we should put standards on them, right? You don't want to so that the kids are going to a safe place, but we're not then providing a training path and an economic future for people who want to go into early childhood education. They get you know, snatched up by the school system and others once they get these qualifications. They're just not getting paid enough. So we've known that that's, that entire pipeline has been um, in a desperate place for a while, which is why I do have a legislation that would grant um, hundreds, <laughs> it, would, it would focus hundreds of millions uh, at the entire problem uh, for states who are, have child care deserts. This might be the right opportunity to push some of those into the front light. You know, people say they talk about them, they give them lip service, but this might be the time to say, look, we literally can't send our nurses or our, you know, our, our paramedics to on the job. You know, my kids can run around and wreak havoc on my house and I only have to break in if they're actually physically gonna hurt one another, right? I can focus on my webinar, but a, but a first responder can't do that. And so maybe this is how we get that legislation either attached to something or we pull a piece of that out in terms of a demonstration project and get some money moving in that direction. And that's something um, a number of us are very committed to doing. I think, um, you know, one of the things we've seen, and this won't be news to this group, when you start talking about, and, and this is the way I see it, um, you know, you should, we absolutely should have a, a standard minimum wage. I have no problem with that. But when you start taking, uh, you know, what is a minimum wage in a place like Seattle and applying it to a place like Ocean Park, you're going to see a strain. And what I've heard from childcare providers is they can't compete. They can't. In fact, we just lost ESD 112 here in, in Southwest Washington. Part of it's COVID related, but part of it is the inability to pay workers at that cost and you're looking at, because they need certain training levels, and so we're losing more slots um, as a result. So we have to speak to that, we have to figure that out, we have to address that in a way that is both just and equitable to the worker and to the training they've received. If we're gonna require them to get trained, we need to pay them, but also make sure that the centers themselves 
um, can pay it. So there's a lot around this um, that we need to address. And maybe, you know, with 4.0, this is an opportunity to get some of that money drawn down. And, and then we can prove, you know, maybe that's how we address the rest of the system as we return to whatever our new normal is. Great, thank you. Congressman, did you have any comments on, on that? I know you've, you've got a few areas in your district um, who have severe crises in childcare. Yeah, and we've been talking with a lot of folks about this, uh, both childcare providers and even large organization like the Boys and Girls Club. We, we know that these centers need more funding um, and we're continuing to have those conversations. Some of the CARES Act included uh, things like community development block grant funding, and the intent of that was to be flexible funds that could be used for this. Um, and I've been supportive of ensuring that that funding and, and frankly additional funding is going to our frontline uh, workers who need it uh, need it most. Um, you know, and, and I'm certainly encouraged by uh, uh, some of the efforts underway around Bill 4 and, and I'm hopeful that uh, Jamie and I can tag team in, in hoping that it's addressed in upcoming legislation. Great, thank you. A couple other questions um, around this topic area. Uh, one is around the LNI um, uh, issue and whether that the LNI would be considered a, a forgivable under the loans. Is that something that has been brought up? Is something that's going to be part of the rulemaking? Any thoughts on that? I, I, I no. I mean, it, it applies to operating expenses, but I, I you know. Um, we can try to track that down and make sure that we give you a, an accurate answer. But, you know, obviously there's provisions that say that um, a certain amount needs to be spent on payroll, but there's, you know, broadly the notion of this is to help businesses cover costs. And, you know, some of those costs are mortgages and some of those costs are utilities and some of those costs are workers comp. So I, I believe that would be eligible, but let us um, let us chase down an answer and make sure we got it right. Um, talking about our our healthcare system currently, and looking at how are we going to increase the, the eligibility or increase the number of testing that we have, as well as the uh, uh, support services, support equipment for our healthcare industry. Can you speak? We'll speak to that a bit as far as what the federal government's doing to support Washington State's healthcare system as we help to uh, prevent the spread of the COVID and uh, treatment of. I'll, I'll take a crack. So the short answer is not enough. Um, yeah, not I was enough say, how do you answer that one? Uh, you know, the, the, the reality is we need far more testing. Um, yeah. And there are a number of things that have proved to be rate limiting steps on this front. Um, perhaps the biggest piece is just supplies that go into testing and the availability of personal protective equipment. And Jamie and I have both been on calls with the administration um, asking, you know, to pull that lever harder on the Defense Production Act to make sure that we're having domestic production of the supplies that are needed to ramp up testing. Uh, we were on a call yesterday with the governor um, uh, in which he said that we should have, and Jamie, tell me if I got this wrong, I think he said that we should be averaging 15 to 20,000 tests per day as a state, and right now we're at 4,000 tests per day. And so we simply don't have enough uh, capacity um, so what does that look like to get capacity? I, I think, you know, we should be focused on three things. One is kind of address in the bill that we passed last week, and that is to have a national testing strategy. It's important that that be a national testing strategy, not just sort of an agglomeration of 50 state testing strategy, you know, with paperclip on it. 
Um, we need to have a national testing strategy. And I, I've been, uh, I'm a sponsor of a bill to, uh, that puts some meat on that bone and says exactly what that ought to look like. You know, to me, what that ought to look like is developing a target national number of tests per day, including the criteria for who should be assured a test and a transparent plan for how the federal government will ensure that those tests are rapidly performed and processed, including assistance with securing the supplies that are needed, whether that be person protective equipment or swabs or reagents or any of these other things that apparently we don't have enough of. The other piece of this is um, uh, you know, uh, the sort of surveillance testing to identify community level spread of the virus. Um, uh, you know, we're looking at having the CDC provide formula grants for states for the purposes of surveillance testing um, and uh, having the CDC do the serologic uh, studies as well. Um, and then the final piece of this, you know, as we look at, at opening up, and you've seen the governor speak to this as well, is, you know, until a vaccine is available, our best tool to slow the spread of COVID-19 is to rely on the traditional and effective methods of infectious disease management. You know, and the foundation of that is contact tracing. You know, by, by quickly finding and testing contacts of reported cases, you can prevent another widespread outbreak like the one we're, uh, we've been experiencing. Because the worst possible scenario here is that we go through all that we've been going through and then have to repeat this exercise because we didn't, you know, because we get another outbreak. And so that work is labor intensive. Um, and when communities begin to reopen, it's pretty clear that state and tribal and local public health departments aren't going to have the capacity to conduct this work um, on their own. And so, you know, what we've heard from folks like John Johns Hopkins is that um, we need as a country an extra 100,000 contact tracers. It's about 30 contact tracers per 100,000 people in our country. And so um, you've already heard the governor speak to his efforts to hire up that contact tracing workforce. The federal government ought to help there. And, and um, uh, I'm pushing, and I think Jamie's also pushing uh, to see that happen. And I, I think too, in addition, um, overall, there has to be a federal strategy. I think Derek's absolutely right. And you know, a number of us have been pushing, honestly, I, I don't even care. I don't care if it's the feds. I don't care if it's the state. I don't care who it is. The fact that we're still having to demand this at this point is frustrating to me. Um, and I know to many of you who are attempting, you want to start looking to what it would take to reopen. Well, Derek's exactly right. We have to have, um, tr we have to have uh, uh, testing availability widespread in our community and the ability to contact trace because then what happens is as we reopen in certain areas and with with safety precautions and with distancing and and we're mindful about the health you know each business is going to be mindful about how they how they put that together but then when we have someone who comes down with it because that will happen we can immediately test we can immediately test in their circle and then we can begin the contact tracing that's how we move forward that's how we get our economy open again. That's how we, we come into our new normal. And the fact that we're still having to ask for this is very frustrating. You know, we've, we've said yes to trillions of dollars at this point, <laughs> um, both to help our economy come out of this and to get healthcare to people so we minimize the suffering and the death. So, and that's hard. I mean, we're, we're both fiscally responsible people. This is not something we do flippantly. 
but I think it's not, at this point, you're hearing a little bit of frustration that we're still having to demand this piece. Um, and, and there are a number of reasons why. There are, there, are, there are so many reasons when we do, I expect something akin to like a 9-11 commission where there's a bipartisan in-depth look back at how this whole thing was done, done well, not done well. well we'll be able to put some of these pieces together. But one of the things that I have learned out of this is I'm not gonna wait for the feds because I don't trust that that's gonna get here. And Derek said, a number of us have just said, we're just gonna do this in our districts to the best of our ability. I did a, um, we have a private lab in Vancouver, molecular testing labs, who has, con con he contacted me at the very beginning of this and said, I can do this. I have this number of you know machines that can run the tests. I need PPE. Of course. You know, we couldn't get MPP, right? He manages to get his own. He gets FDA approval. That was an issue in and of itself. I had to beat on the FDA to get that moving, not beat physically. <laughs> I mean, politically. Um, and so that that approval comes through. And then now he's he's trying to get. He's got the ability. We've got a manufacturer who manufactures saliva testing here in Vancouver. He can do the saliva testing uh, tests here in Vancouver. He can do tens of thousands a day. And we've gotten stuck in bureaucracy, getting an approval from the FDA, then getting an approval from the state, then getting an approval from FDA again. I wanna pull my hair out because they're telling us they can't get us the supplies. Okay, fine, we're gonna be master of our own destiny, we're gonna do it ourselves. Um, and we're still running into this bureaucracy. So I did a letter with a Vancouver Mayor Ann McInerney Ogle last week as a proposal to the governor you know, I know he's he is very strongly considering how to reopen safely, what to do. And our proposal to him was do a little demonstration project, pick some type of industry, um, and use you know this local testing capability to um, to test the employees as they go back to work weekly, twice weekly. You know, and, and then let's give this a few weeks of operation and see if we can't maintain this. Um, I haven't heard back from the governor yet. I'm excited about that opportunity. But I think, you know, as we're laboring to get the federal, the behemoth of the federal government to operate in this way, I do think that some of it's going to take the creativity from the people on this call, from this group, you know, working with your local elected leaders, with your, you know, with Derek, with I, with your congresspeople to come forward with, this is how we're going to do it in our, our community. I think people like the governor, even the president, they're saying, okay, that's a great idea. Go with it. You know what I mean? They, they want some help here. They've got a lot of irons in the fire. Um, so I just even encourage those of you who have solutions uh, here to come forward with them. Because um, I, I think that's going to be another way to get get ourselves moving more quickly. Thank you both. And so turning a bit to um, economic recovery discussion. And, you know, the governor did release a few uh, restrictions this week, allowing for some recreation. But we are anticipating at some point we will get back to a little bit of what we might consider a new normal for us. Uh, one of the questions we are being asked quite a bit by our members is, what about liability for employers? You open back up, you have employees coming in, you may be doing a two, kind of twofold. How are we protecting the employees who are back at work and what happens if they do contract the, the um, COVID-19 because of their, their presence at work? And then also, what type of liability are we putting on some of our businesses? So, for example, we, we have a big contingent of hairdressers who are active. And if you look at Georgia's regulations, they're being asked to, for example, take somebody's temperature. So you have somebody coming in to get their hair done. They get their temperature taken. The hairdresser says, oof, you know, it's a little elevated, so you need to leave. Are they then giving health care 
um, advice? Or are they giving, you know, providing a diagnosis? So can you, both, can you both speak to, and Congressman, I'll start with you, can you speak to this employer liability issue? How are we going to protect our businesses? We, they want to open, we want to restart our economy, but if there's liability involved there, how are we going to address that? So, you know, obviously uh, the discussion around reopening the economy, I, I think that should happen with the business community, not to the business community. And um, I was pleased, I think it was uh, on last week's call with the delegation, the governor indicated that he was uh, kind of putting together an advisory uh, panel um, with uh, leaders from the business community to advise on you know, what should it look like and making sure that there's good, solid guidance for employers to ensure that businesses aren't liable for further, um, you know, uh, economic challenges due to uh, due to this pandemic. Um, obviously, when we reopen, it has to be smart, it has to be safe, it has to follow the guidance of public health officials. Um, and uh, I think the entire delegation will be working closely with the governor's office on uh, on on providing that guidance to uh, to employers. I will also mention, you know, you've already seen in some of the legislation that has moved, you know, even going back to the very first uh, uh, bill, you know, we were hearing from uh, our hospitals here in Washington state concerns about ac access to, to masks. And at the same time, we were hearing from 3M, we got plenty of masks, but they're for industrial purposes, not medical purposes. And so at the request of the state of Washington, um, we as a delegation advocated for language in that bill to say, let's provide liability protection to mask manufacturers if they're providing masks that work and keep people safe, even if they weren't developed specifically for medical purposes, our goal should be keeping people safe. And so that was included in the bill. So that that discussion is not new to, to, to this pandemic. It's not new to Congress and will likely be um, something that's uh, considered going forward. And I think Mitch McConnell, he mentioned that he wants to have it in the next, so another iteration of that in the next uh, 4.0. I, I believe we need to address it. I've had, I mean, you used the example of the, the hairdressers. I mean, I, I was down ordering takeout from one of my favorite local uh, establishments in battleground and i just start i mean so you have one person come in to work in the back and what if they get it you can't tell where they get it he's been cleared to reopen and just the liability that he's open to is is amazing so i think we have to address how we're going to move forward on that I, I don't i don't see how we don't i don't know about you but i've seen the tv commercials i i've seen their groups their ads who are i feel like unscrupulous actors saying did you get it? Did you get it at work? Well, let's join together and start. And I'm thinking, oh my goodness. You know, I definitely think there are probably people who were not safe uh, and employees were not protected. And, and nobody wants bad actors to be protected. But in terms of reopening the economy, there's a lot of, I've heard a lot of anxiety from businesses who are saying, we want to do this. We want to do it as safe and under every guideline you've given us, do everything we can, but we can't no one can ensure 100% uh, uh, protection. So how can you help us as we move forward in that? And I think we need, we need to provide some assistance. Thank you. Um, what are your thoughts on infrastructure investment as a means of economic recovery? You know, in Washington State, we have 
a infrastructure report detailing out what the needs are statewide in all uh, in infrastructure areas. And this could really be a good jobs opportunity. So thoughts on um, that as a part of economic uh, recovery. Congresswoman Herrera Butler, should we start with you? Sure. It's funny, so I have a call with the Washington State uh, Secretary of Transportation later this afternoon. And so, so I have two thoughts on this. Number one, every state's handling this a little differently. I was on a call, I'm uh, the ranking member on ledge branch appropriations. And so we had a conversation with the architect of the Capitol about how and when Congress resumes, however it's gonna resume. And in that call, he shared, cause we were asking about construction, he shared that the DMV, which is the DC Metro Virginia area, they have accelerated all of their construction that's all considered essential. So they're all going gangbusters right now as the traffic has ceased or slowed significantly. Um, and I thought that was interesting. Different areas are gonna look at this differently. Um, I know that on the West Coast, governors are looking at it in the way that, you know, the way that makes sense uh, for our region. That's something I am gonna be bringing up with our uh, Secretary of Transportation today. I mean, we have this tiny little project that crosses the river between Washington and Oregon. Uh, and, and there are some things happening with that this fall that were supposed to happen the first week that school was supposed to start. So September 12th, I'm gonna say what, what would, you know, which is going to be a massive traffic headache. What, what would impede us from taking advantage of some of the slowdown now? Obviously federally, um, there's been a lot of talk about how do we put some dollars together around some sort of a, pro a project-based infrastructure bill that could perhaps, you know, get some of the economy moving again and get some of the stuff done in a more expedited, expedited fashion. And I'm, I'm supportive, absolutely. Um, I don't know that the feds have totally turned to that. Like, I mean, we've, we've mentioned with regard um, uh, to PPE, there's still some health things that were immediate, or kind of, I think, immediately taking the focus. But I know even with the problem solvers group that I'm a member of, it's a nonpartisan group. Um, we're all talking about how can we as a, as a, can, how, okay, so what's, what's the next step of moving this forward and, and a transportation infrastructure package is something that we're going to be pushing and promoting as a group. Yeah, and let me start by just recognizing and appreciating the Association of Washington Business for its leadership on the broader discussion of infrastructure investment. I know that uh, along with our state's uh, public ports and our uh, cities and counties, you know, AWB is really leading the way on this. Uh, let me say up front also, um, what you've seen out of Congress so far, I've, I've always I've kind of bristled when I've heard from the media that this was a stimulus package. This isn't a stimulus package. This is a stop the bleeding package, right? This is about providing relief to people who are really hurting right now. But it will not, in and of itself, promote economic growth. It may soften, cushion some of what is a massive blow to our economy. Mm -hmm. Um, but it's not a stimulus. At some point, we're going to have to have a conversation around how do we grow this economy? And one of the smartest things we can do, to the point of the Association of Washington Businesses Advocacy, is invest in infrastructure. You know, according to the American Society of Civil Engineers, American infrastructure grades out at a D plus. I don't know how many people on this webinar have tried to, uh, before the pandemic, drive on Interstate 5 from Tacoma to Seattle, but I'm pretty sure the speed limit signs are only there for nostalgic purposes because you're just sitting in traffic and it is brutal. Um, I will say with the advent of people telecommuting, it's fundamentally changed my relationship with my brother who commutes from Olympia to Seattle every day because I don't have to listen to him complain about sitting in traffic. But um, I, I, that, that may be one of the only upsides of this. Now, here's the problem. 
um, uh, the transportation revenue um, for the state of Washington and for every state is in the tank right now. You know, yeah. people are driving less, people aren't filling up their um, gas tanks. Um, people aren't crossing the Tacoma Narrows Bridge as much. People aren't riding our ferries as much. Sales tax revenue is down, which is also a hit to our, our ferry systems. So, you know, part of the role of the federal response to this has to also be focused on support for our, our, our state and local governments. Um, that should be broadly defined, uh, so that includes lost, uh, lost transportation revenue, because what we don't want to see is after the Association of Washington Business and after our state legislation, legislature on a bipartisan basis um, passed investments in, in transportation, we don't want to see a bunch of projects fall off the list. I think we should be adding projects onto the list by having the federal government both um, provide help to state and local governments and transit agencies for that matter. And then let's do an infrastructure package. I, I think we should actually define infrastructure broadly too, not just roads and bridges, but also things like uh, sewer and uh, and water systems, um, broadband. You know, listen, I represent a district that's in the bottom 20% of the country when it comes to access to the internet. And the problem is, you know, you look at that when your schools are shut down, we're not talking about people's ability to watch Tiger King on Netflix. We're talking about helping our kids learn and helping, you know, someone who just got laid off apply through employment security online or helping a small business try to weather this storm. And so to me, broadband infrastructure needs to be a piece of this too. Well, said. thank you. Yeah. Thank you for bringing up the broadband aspect of it. Um, absolutely. We're hearing from our businesses is, is this is how we continue to do business. Does this become our new norm? Um, and I would, I would ask both of you then too, how do you see this crisis impacting how the nation does business, how we deliver education, how we deliver healthcare? Are there changes that are going to be impacted that we will need to address at the federal level with increased regulations, oversight, or, and or uh, investments? You know, I think we're learning some stuff out of this. You know, one, uh, Jamie and I were on a call with the hospital association earlier today, and one of the things they said was, you know, it turns out this telehealth stuff is pretty good. Um, and we, you know, we've gotten some waivers and our state has provided some waivers for the provision of telehealth. Um, you know, maybe the quote unquote back to normal, um, maybe normal looks a little bit different, right? Maybe it's a new normal where we do things more like uh, the provision of, of telehealth services. You know, the largest employer in the district I represent is the Puget Sound Naval Shipyard in the history of the Puget Sound Naval Shipyard, they didn't really do telework. And as of, I think, a couple of weeks ago, they were at like 2,500 people teleworking. And as I talked to Captain Wolfson, she said, you know, turns out this really, you know, some of these, some of these folks, maybe we should be doing some telework, right? Like maybe that should be part of the, of the new normal um, uh, from here. Um, having said that, we need to make sure that the response to this doesn't just exacerbate some of the inequities that existed in our system uh, before, right? If you look at our education system, you know, distance learning um, uh, is important, but how does that work if someone doesn't have access to broadband or if a kid doesn't have, um, you know, a tablet? Uh, you know, and, and our schools are being enterprising about how to navigate that. I, I think we have to be thoughtful so that the new normal doesn't just exacerbate some of the inequities that we saw uh, uh, prior to this. Um, 
you know, we're working on some other stuff around uh, around uh, around this, but why don't I I just leave it at that and I'll kick it over to Jamie. I you know one of the things I have observed, and I think it's true. You know, we're finding efficiencies in how we're operating right now that I hope we incorporate into the new normal. Period. I think the telework telehealth is such a great example. I. So I have constituents in Kelso Longview who have to travel, you know, all over the all over my district, but who have to travel to OHSU or Dornbecker. It's the Children's Hospital in Portland. It's closer, um, and that's the the regional care versus driving up to Seattle Children's, right? Um, and I got a call from one of the nurses who works at OHSU, and she said, "So we've got two. We've got one doctor, and we've got." one or two nurses who are both licensed in Oregon and Washington. So for the time being, they can do the telehealth for your constituents who are in Kelso because we don't want those, you know, immunocompromised kiddos to have to drive all the way in and come into a hospital for their regular clinic visit. But we don't have any renal dietitians. Uh, nobody thought about renal dietitians and we need a waiver. And so we took that right to the governor and we, we were successful in getting that. But now it just started me thinking, so, so, when these kiddos, so in this, I know the family that we're talking about, if he's not sick and he's immune compromised, there's no reason for him to drive from Kelso to Portland and back. His mom has to take the time off work, drive him down there. That's, you know, we talk about tolls and all those types of issues uh, just for his, his regular clinic visit. If it's just checking vitals and checking in, that can all be done uh, over, over a telehealth network. Um, why can't we incorporate those types of efficiencies? And I think I think we're going to see some of that. You know, on the education front, this is this is such a fascinating, um, you know, at living through it right now. So I have a kindergartner who we are keeping up on her math, and uh, per her teachers, uh, they're like, here's all the extra stuff. Here's what has to be done, which was helpful. All the extra stuff, I'm like, good grief, that you, whoever does this is amazing. We're feeding her, clothing her. Generally, they get dressed, but not always. But we do her math, her reading, and her writing. And, and you know, that's one of the things where I think about other families uh, or, you know, you have older kids or younger kids, and how do you make it all work? I have an amazing husband, really an amazing husband. And so, you know, we're making this happen. But there, that's not the case in so many families. And how do we make sure that if, you know, these that, that all these kiddos have access. I also though think, so just a mile from my house is a public homeschool. So we have a public academy, we have public schools, and we have a public homeschool all within like a mile and a half of my house here in Battleground. And it's interesting to see the, the case study of how as everybody had to go, you know, go online or go home, who's able to successfully meet the needs, even of those who are, um, you know, who maybe don't have the benefit of having both two parents in the home or, or you know, a, a, um, you know a, a, a total electronic system set up versus just base, you know, your basics. And the, the homeschool program, because they were geared this way, uh, the public homeschool program is able to continue the education of the kids in that program. And, and so I, it just has got me thinking about not just in telehealth and not just in education, but we're learning to adapt and become more efficient. And I'm hoping you, know, you see this kind of thing in Silicon Valley, right? They're like, we can do whatever. Why tell us no? Well, I think we need some of our old system, even Congress, some of our very old systems and ways of doing things. We're just how we've always done them. That's why we do it. 
are going are having to modernize to move forward. And I think in all of these major institutions that in fact affect our, our own lives, um, we're going to get the chance to modernize. And that doesn't mean we're going to throw everybody into one system, but we're going to be able to extrapolate best practices from each of these areas. Maybe we'll be more efficient. Maybe we'll get better results. I'm actually, it's kind of in my mind, one of the silver linings of what's happening right now. That's a good point. And I know a lot of states, Washington State included, and has kind of been leading in this area on this discussion around future work. What does our workplace look like? And this is kind of pushing us into that arena. One more question before we wrap this up. Uh, as we do move into uh, recovery, we're going to get folks back to work. Some of those folks do not have a job to return to, whether the business is shut down completely, uh, slimmed down their workforce, what it, whatever it might be. How is the federal government going to address uh, worker retraining dollars, additional uh, education dollars to be able to infuse into the system to make sure that we are training for the skills that are needed as we move into our new normal? Yeah, I'm actually working on this issue as we speak. Um, you know, w we had worked with uh, the Association of Business back when I was in the state legislature on the idea of lifelong learning accounts. Um, we have a bill called the Skills Investment Act, which would um, which would replicate that. And we're actually working with our co-leads on from that bill on legislation uh, soon that would give unemployed workers credits to use toward certification or college or other programs to help get back into the workforce at the end of this uh, crisis. And um, look forward to hopefully teaming up with the uh, AWB uh, on that front. We also did a letter to House leadership um, asking for um, uh, the work, Workforce Investment and Opportunity Act to have, to have additional funding for that in the next coronavirus uh, package. Uh, that letter specifically called for about $15 billion in workforce programs to help workers and to help employers during this uh, this crisis. The, the, the CARES Act included some funding for dislocated worker grants, but a whole lot more is going to be needed uh, to meet the, the additional demand for assistance. I think on that front, too, you know, I've, I have been uh, a strong advocate of the WIOA programs. Um, in the workforce investment funding and 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 modernizing those and how they're used, um, I think this will be another opportunity to make sure that funding is more flexible um, to address uh, workforce skill shortages and training programs in coordination with community organizations. I've also introduced the Chance and Tech Act, which would provide federal grants uh, with regard to a, in, in apprenticeship programs through intermediaries. And it's something I've actually been very excited about. I think, again, this is one of those times when these ideas, the ones that Derek just mentioned, the, the ones I'm promoting, are, are going to get a, a better look because we're all going to have to discuss as we move, as we shift from mitigating the health crisis to reopening a new economy, I think a 21st century economy, and it, that doesn't mean everybody's going to become a, a gig worker, but it means everybody's going to work more efficiently and more effectively, and I think these these pieces of legislation are going to provide us that opportunity. All right, before we, um, we wrap up, I want to uh, provide you both with some time to uh, give some closing comments, but we've had several questions come through uh, that we weren't able to get to. I uh, want to remind our folks that uh, your banks are a good resource. AWB has a resource page. If you go to our website, awb.org, there's an excellent web page that gives you a lot of uh, resources. And then this Monday from 10 to noon, or this coming Monday, May 4th, from 10 to noon, we have another webinar discussing insurance claims. 
as well as financial assistance and resources. So we encourage you to, uh, to uh, join that one as well. Uh, so let me start off, uh, Congressman Kilmer, uh, any closing comments? Sure. Um, uh, let me just say thanks again to the AWB for being such a great resource for uh, employers throughout our state and awesome thought partners as we've been, um, you know, obviously dealing with two crises, one a pandemic uh, and two all of the economic disruption uh, caused by the pandemic. I'm really grateful uh, that you guys are, are, are on the team. Um, to all the employers participating in this webinar, I just want to say thank you. Um, I, I really think it's important that you're um, that we're doing all we can to help you weather this storm. As I said, you know, you're the star running backs of our economy, and and I want to make sure we're doing all we can to do some blocking for you, um, so you can unleash beast mode on this economy. Um, also just want to remind folks that we can all play a role in in preventing the spread of this virus. Um, you know, keep following those CDC guidelines. Uh, as I said, you know, as we look to re reopen the economy, making sure that there's clarity around what folks can and can't do. And we're doing our best to try to prevent having to go through this again. Um, obviously, uh, that's really important. Um, I guess, uh, I work for you, so don't hesitate to reach out. I've got a website. It's just kilmer.house.gov. We've got a whole bunch of resources on there. Uh, I'm on Facebook and Twitter and not particularly good on Instagram, but we're trying. Um, and I guess the final thing I'll just say is keep the faith. I know it's a really hard time, and uh, I have a lot of empathy for um, our employers who not only are trying to make sure that they're um, – uh, protecting their assets, but also uh, I'm conscious of how much people consider their employees to be family. And I know that's hard as you're seeing your family hurt too. Uh, having said that, I, you know, this virus isn't the only thing that's contagious. So is kindness and so is compassion and so is caring about each other. And so I just encourage folks to keep doing that too and count me as a partner. Thanks everybody. Congressman. Congresswoman? Uh, yeah. Um, I are just there isn't a single uh, employer, family, individual, employee. I mean, there, no one has been left unaffected by the COVID crisis. And I feel like, um, you know, we've had a lot as a nation, as a as a global economy, but as a nation to deal with. Um, and I, I I echo the sentiment that, you know, I me personally, when this whole first thing unfolded, I I really had to deal with fear. You know, I have a, my oldest kid, kiddo, has, uh, uh, she's immunosuppressed. And, you know, the one thing they keep saying is, well, you're fine unless you're, you know, immunocompromised or you're elderly. And I just was like, would you quit saying that and quit reminding me? And I had to look that one square in the face um, and recognize yeah, some of the statistics, that's maybe true, but we're going to pull through this and we're going to be good. And I think once I, my perspective on that changed, and some of it was prayer, some of it was talking to my amazing husband, some of it was just recognizing I still have a job to do in the middle of this, and it's to serve. Just like Derek said, you all are our bosses. And we have, I had to look a little bit more broadly to uh, the individuals, the families, and the businesses, the, the hospitals, all the folks in our region who desperately needed us to get our butts to work, so to speak. And that really helped me change my perspective. And so as we're all looking at this, you know, I've heard it. I get, I think about some of these small business owners I've talked to who are saying, I'm taking care of my employees. I'm going to do what it takes. I put all my own cash back into the business. We're going to keep afloat as best we can. Anything you can do is helpful. And in my mind, gosh, that is both humbling and it's, it, it is, 
it's invigorating. It means, okay, we need, that's part of why Derek and I uh, are introducing the Paycheck Protection Extension Act, because we want to see this move forward. We want to make sure that they're, that we get that lifeline out to businesses. You know, I liken it, you mentioned that it's not a stimulus. I completely agree. This is nothing like a stimulus. But I liken this actually to eminent domain. When the federal government or the state governments or the local governments come in and say, for public good, we're requiring you not to operate. We're requiring you to take it on the chin and possibly lose everything. This is the this is in some way that exchange that would take place under eminent domain. And we all, nobody here likes eminent domain. Well, this was similar. This was a similar government action that caused this financial hardship. So we're doing what we can to tailor the government's response to meet your needs so that you can move forward. Because if the stronger you come out of this, the stronger our communities are going to be. And the the leading with uh, clear, you know, intensity and and cautiousness, but not fear. Um, you're you're providing that leadership to your employees and to the families that are infect, affected by you. And we we're here to to do whatever we can uh, to help you be successful in that. So thank you to AWB. Thank you for the opportunity to pull together with folks. Um, and thank you again. You, I think Derek coined the term thought leader. Uh, we're going to say thought partner. That was that was slick. Thank you for being a thought partner in this um, and consider us a resource. I too, my website has um, a, a ton of information, whether it's if you're an employer who wants to take advantage of the treasury programs, you need understanding about unemployment assistance or all, everything that's come out federally on my COVID page, it's jhb.house.gov and there's a whole COVID section. Uh, and we're happy, we're still doing all the casework. We're still happy to do anything that we can to assist you, especially during this time. So thank you, it's been a privilege to be a part. Well, thank you, Congresswoman Herrera-Butler and Congressman Filmer for your time and all the work that you're doing to support Washington State. Thank you all for joining us. Stay safe and healthy. We are adjourned. Thanks for listening. Stay up to date on all the latest developments that affect employers during the stay-at-home order and as the country and state open back up for business by going to awb.org for a full list of employer resources and to register for upcoming events. Talk to you next time.